Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back once again to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and resident also on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras, and I'm joined towards this year end by Dr. Joe Boot. And thanks for... Uh, for being with us. Thanks for sticking with us uh, through this year. It has been a, uh, a blessing and a joy to, to take this time to go through uh, some of the, uh, the thought of Thomas Aquinas. And we're here today to do a bit of a, a recap and a wrapping up. This will conclude our time, our, our sustained meditation on Aquinas. Uh, we, may, we may come back to it from time to time, but this concludes this uh, this feature of the programming. Thanks for sticking with us. We're uh, we're looking forward uh, going into the new year. Uh, we'll have a new uh, a new short series on uh, the Ten Commandments. That's uh, that's where we're planning to to begin, and we'll have uh, we'll have uh, guests, old friends, and new. We're looking forward to to digging into this important aspect. One of, one of the things that we talk about and talk around quite a bit here at the Ezra Institute is this, uh, this issue of the law of God. And so we wanted to, uh, to take the time and put the, uh, put the effort and thought into doing it in a, in a sustained and coherent way. So I hope, uh, I hope that will be a blessing to you. We're looking forward to doing that uh, on our side here. And I just mentioned that uh, we are getting into the end of the year. And I would be remiss if I neglected to mention that uh, that you can get your uh, your year end donations in to uh, to the Ezra Institute. We're uh, we're a not for profit charity. We depend on the regular support of our listeners and donors, and your your support helps us to uh, to create not only more podcast content but to uh, to continue to put on events, uh, to hire staff, to produce other resources and books. And do everything that uh, that God has equipped and enabled us to do. Uh, you're a you're a critical part of that, and we appreciate your support. And to make a uh, to make a year end donation, you can visit ezrainstitute.com. There is a conspicuous donate button on the homepage, and you can uh, you can make your make, give your year end support there. And we uh, we're very grateful for it. Uh, finally, one. Uh, one last thing, we, or we want to uh, thank all of you who attended the Mission of God conference uh, in Windsor at Harvest, Harvest Bible Church in Windsor last week. Uh, thankful for uh, Dr. Aaron Rock and his, uh, his church for their hospitality. Dr. Rock was one of the featured speakers along with, uh, with you, Joe, and uh, our other Institute fellow, Andre Schutten. It's a and packed house. Packed house. Yeah, 500 good friends. Some uh, some really fascinating uh, Q and A that uh, that I think reflected how uh, how real how germane uh, this issue of environmentalism is uh, to uh, to our everyday lives. And those uh, those lectures will be available shortly on the uh, the Ezra Institute Learning Portal. Just as soon as we nail down a couple of uh, of fine tuning um, logistical details, uh, we're Hoping to uh, hoping to have that out shortly, and you'll be able to uh, 
to get those uh, those lectures and many other uh, courses uh, on that platform. And finally, speaking of conferences, last thing before we dive in, the uh, the Right Response Ministries Conference. We've been talking about that for quite some time. Joe, you'll be a speaker there. Uh, Dr. James White, who's a fellow, and several other uh, friends. That's happening in Georgetown, Texas, in uh, in May, and we are yeah we're looking forward to being there. Uh, glad to uh, glad to be partnering with uh, with Joel Webin and Right Response Ministries for uh, for that event. And I gather that is full now, and that they're no longer able to to, to take to sell any more tickets. That's right. That's uh, that's what I gather as well. So if you've uh, if you've heard about that uh, here, let uh, let Joel know. Let them know what uh, what brought you there. We're we're excited to uh, to partner with with them and be excited to uh, to see many of you there in Georgetown in May. So that uh, that concludes all of our uh, all of our housekeeping. We'll try to uh, try to keep it snappy before we get into the meat of this discussion. And like I said, we're uh, we're wrapping up our conversation on Thomism, and uh, this has been this has been an enlightening series for me personally, and I hope it's been been good for you, Joe. I know that you've had the opportunity to do some some new research in some of these areas as well, which has been refreshing. And as uh, as we were talking about this this wrap up episode, I think uh, the 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 most effective thing to do would just be to uh, rehearse where where we've come from over the past couple of months and lay out the, this uh, this sort of uh, compare and contrast exercise between uh, formal Thomism and what uh, what we would ascribe to and endorse which is a, a reformational approach to uh, to thinking mm-hmm. and philosophy and there are a few specific areas Joe that you articulated where that that really shows up uh, in sharp relief and where the, uh, the gaps between the two are, are significant and important. So why don't we, uh, why don't you start, start with there and we can, we can work through that. Well, I think, um, thanks Ryan. I think one of the, uh, first things to, to say, uh, to our very faithful listeners, um, and, uh, we, we know they're faithful because we, we see the stats and we have access to, um, uh, who's uh, who's listening, or at least how many people are listening, and when? Um, we recognise that this this little mini series we did on Aquinas, we, we took a little bit of a risk with it, in so far as we knew that the the content would be quite abstract. And uh, you know, the Ezra Institute is, after all, a, a Christian worldview, cultural apologetics think tank, and so our wheelhouse is sort of cultural philosophy. Um, and um, cultural apologetics and, and, and Christian worldview. And so um, there's the times when we're able just to sort of meander around the uh, um, interesting developing things within the culture that uh, are perhaps topical in the moment. And there's other times when we get to do a bit more of a deep dive into uh, some of the um, significant issues that are formed and shaped uh, the life of the church and the life of, of Western culture in particular. And certainly Thomism is one of them. And, and many people who listen to this program regularly would not be as aware as others, um, and certainly not as aware uh, as 
our fellows, for example, um, of how there is a conversation. The, the reason that we we picked up this series is because there is a conversation right now, as, and I think um, in your interview with, with our fellow, Dr. James White, that came out very specifically, Ryan, this is a very significant conversation going on at the present time in Christian circles amongst theologians and um, uh, Christian apologists and uh, and philosophers um, within the within the Christian Church, uh, and it especially came to light in the last two or three years with the whole COVID pandemic response, lockdowns, and the differences that emerged in fact we might even say fissures that emerged between a reformational a kyperian um Doyavirdian view of how to re- respond uh, culturally under pressure and actually a sort of Thomistic uh view of reason and of nature and of the state and so on and we've touched on a lot of these topics uh, in the last uh, couple of months, as we've as we've sort of walked through this mini series, uh, Aquinas's view of the state, his view of history, his view of the human person, um, his uh, his actually essentially totalitarian view of the state. Not that he wanted a totalitarian order, but the sort of idea of a, of a papal theocracy and his adoption of a hierarchical view of human society with the state at the top sitting atop of that hierarchy. Um, within nature, uh, th- this um, the, the, the although some of the, the the themes and the ideas seem abstract, the actual issues that have brought this conversation to light are very current. They're very very topical, and it's quite a fierce discussion going on out there. Um, and you have uh, a certain portion of um, the Christian Church that is looking for a retrenchment in. A dualistic worldview in this kind of Thomism, neo-Thomism, natural law, and so on, and another portion of the church which is saying, uh, and of the Christian community, which is saying, no, that those resources are insufficient. In fact, they're counterproductive um, to where we are now. And uh, Reformation, as such, isn't over, um, and we must always be in reform, and we can be grateful for the insights of previous generations of earlier thinkers, and we must take what is good, cling to what is good, um, but there are other things that need to be set aside. And so part of our starting point as well in this whole series has been to say, despite our differences with the Thomists and the Neo-Thomists and the natural law uh, theorists, um, and some of those differences are quite profound and, and significant and deep. Nonetheless, we uh, have tried to recognize and treat Thomas Aquinas not as a pagan philosopher, but as a, as a Christian philosopher, as a genuine Christian, with a job description uh, from the Pope to interpret Aristotle for the church, with a missiological and, and, and almost apologetic uh, mandate in his attempt to address both pagans and Muslims uh, in using those Aristotelian primarily resources. And um, we've wanted to say, in that sense, one cheer for uh, Thomas Aquinas, um, a man concerned about culture, a man concerned about a defense of the faith, a man concerned for the future of the church, a man concerned about Christendom, and we might say to a certain extent, a, a Christian culture of a sort. 
uh, somebody concerned to engage the pagans and the and the Islamic worldview. Um, but uh, our criticism is fundamentally rooted in this in his choice of, or at least the whether it was a truly free choice. Those who are familiar with Thomas will know that there was a Platonizing element in him and an Aristotelian element in him, and it was certainly the Aristotelian uh, resources, that is, of the Greek philosopher, for those who are less uh, schooled in philosophy, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who was a student of Plato. And Thomas takes over so much of his thinking, um, his cosmology, his philosophical framework, and he attempts this synthesis. And that's what we've been critical of. We're critical of the attempted synthesis of pagan Greek thought with Christianity in Thomas's thought. It's sometimes uh, or frequently identified as scholasticism, scholasticism Mm -hmm. reaching its apogee in Thomas Aquinas, and he becomes the Dr. Angelicus. He becomes the, the doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. We've talked a bit about that, and there are specific reasons for that, and people can review the series in their own time. But he was a Christian philosopher. He was uh, somebody who was concerned about many important things that we truly respect, um, but we also need to be honest about where these radical differences lie. And um, I think we've got an opportunity in some respects now to, without using too many Christmas metaphors, put a little bow on this one, mm. uh, wrap this up, uh, as a as a series, and 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 give people um, a final short gift here with a bit of a summary um, of where we've been, uh, and maybe just a, a few sort of concluding comments in in the midst of all of that. But I think that sort of summarizes the posture we've tried to take here um, as we've as we've addressed Thomas Aquinas, and um, hopefully some of those remarks will be helpful for, to those who think, well, this has been a bit of a an abstract sort of sidebar uh, for a few weeks. Well, no, um, these issues are critical because they have profoundly shaped people's response even in the last two or three years uh, to what's happened culturally. These ideas have consequences, and that's why we're concerned about them as a ministry. No, that's right. I think that's a uh, that's a fair summary. Those are some clear boundaries, I think, that, uh, that we're... Uh, contain to contain this uh, this conversation within and uh i guess speaking speaking of boundaries uh joe you were mentioning beforehand the first uh, the first issue that uh, that you have uh with thomas is the question of his uh, his focus which is cosmological rather than on a question of origins and development yeah so um when we think about uh, um you know, different schools of thought, um, there's usually an emphasis um, and um, a, a particular emphasis that, that you know, helps identify it as a school. And um, the primary concern of, um, of Thomas Aquinas is the, is the structure of things as viewed through the, the problematics of Greek thought, of form and matter, mm-hmm. uh, that, that specifically come through with Aristotle, and so we've talked a fair bit about that. So I don't want to uh, I don't want to, to spoil anybody's Christmas with another with another review of the form matter scheme. But the, this this sort of problematic was dealing with the the structure of things. 
But the Greeks were a lot less interested in the origin of things, um, partly because they didn't really have a view of creation as such. They 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 believed in these, uh, in a sense, eternally existing um, uh, principles of form and matter. Um, uh, whereas the Bible um, is very interested in the question of origin, the creation of all things, um, and in the development of everything in terms of the kingdom of God, the development of um, eschatology. We, we often, in, even in theology, talk about a redemptive historical hermeneutic mm-hmm. um, because the Bible is so concerned with the unfolding of the plans and purposes of God, change within history. Now, because of, of the influence of, of uh, Aristotle's thought on Aquinas, Aquinas is, is, is concerned about the um, eternal structures of things. And this would be a big departure from where we as reformational thinkers would be, because for us, um, the, we do not try and eternalize law or structure within creation. Um, and that's and we'll touch on this a, a bit more in a moment. That's because we maintain the creator-creature distinction. This is a temporal world. It's a temporal order, and it's governed by God's law for creation. And creation involves both constancy, God's God's uh, norms for creation, and change. Uh, so there is God has ordained development within uh, creation as well. Now. Aquinas and uh, Aristotle had their own idea of things reaching their perfection, but their fundamental concern was of a of an order, an eternal order, and that tends to make their view of things very static. And that's what we mean by this cosmological structure of things, and less of an interest in origin and uh, development. And so you have this very static view of reality that came out as we discussed things like. Uh, natural law, for example, uh, and their idea of eternal law, um, and and of course, if 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 law is eternal, and uh, these are reflected then within creation itself, then you end up with a very static view of history, and then of course you also end up, and we talked about this in the series too, uh, you end up with a, a, almost a fatalistic. Uh, uh, view of, of predestination um, and uh, a lack of, a, of, of awareness and appreciation for the way the covenantal relationship, the human factor, uh, is involved there. And so these are some of the tensions that come through. So, yeah, we, we might say that the first criticism is that uh, instead of dealing with fundamentally the issue of the Bible, the focus being the religious nature of man, Mm. and his covenant relationship with God, the religious character of creation itself, the religious root of creation in Christ. It's uh, the, 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 the ground of meaning for all of creation being in Christ and in his image bearer, who is then called with a purpose as creatures of God, as the Imago Dei, as... Um, We've often said homo respondents as responding beings to the word of God, how we're then going to live and serve within creation. That would be the reformational emphasis, a starting point, the religious nature of creation, 
the religious root of creation, the religious nature of man, all of life as religion, and therefore the question of origin being central, the issue of structure is what is central to this cosmological way of thinking. Origin barely gets a look in, and that's to be expected with the Greek inheritance. So that, that would be our first, um, in wrapping this up, that would be our first mm-hmm. fundamental criticism. Right. And that, uh, that actually leads, really uh, dovetails nicely with, with another issue. Uh, you, you just mentioned the, the reformational emphasis on the covenantal reality of nature. And this, uh, this leads to uh, a question of ontology. We see it in Thomas, which is, which is a, a big word for the, uh, the philosophy or thought regarding being and what it is to be God or to be man. Uh, to be a human being, these are these are ontological questions. And again, uh, Thomism and biblical reformational thought approach these in two significantly different ways. Yeah. Well, because of the the reformational view that all of life is religion and that creation is a unity with its religious root in Christ, and therefore man's fundamental nature being one that's in relationship to God as a responding being. Um, The reformational view does not uh, recognize any artificial dichotomies or distinction within creation that would would break it up into a a kind of hierarchy. it means because all of life and all of creation is rooted in this religious relationship, there is no neutral territory. Mm-hmm. There's no autonomous area of life. And so the second basic criticism of the Thomistic direction of thought would be of its dualistic view, this original dichotomy that uh, comes through in Thomistic thought of a transcendent God and a non-transcendent um, universe but within one hierarchy of being. So uh, we explained during the series that Aquinas, uh, like the Greeks, tended to view being, imagine one great big circle. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being is being. And within that concept of being, um, you have a a dichotomy, a a transcendent part and a non-transcendent part within existing reality, within the universe, One is higher, one is lower. And what we tried to tease out was how this leads to all kinds of problems and and, and unfortunately false problems because the Bible doesn't recognize some kind of original dichotomy um, of higher and lower um, within creation. Right, Um, eyeing the problems when you don't have to. (laughs) Right, and and it's, it's kind of... When you think about it, in some respects, there's a certain tragedy involved because if you if you frame the questions incorrectly uh, because of false assumptions, you can end up spending an awful lot of time of wasted time dealing with false problems. Mm-hmm. And um, so much ink has been spilled, I think, on false problems. Um, so, for instance, uh, what's the difference between God and creation and what's their relationship if they are merely higher and lower parts of the same hierarchy of being? Now you've got to tease out uh, what the distinction is and what the relationship is when they're part of this hierarchy. Now, part of the solution that was offered by the Thomists was to talk about a, um, 
an imminent and a transcendent role for God uh, within this hierarchy. Uh, but the next question then immediately becomes, well, if um, God is imminent within creation, in what sense is he present within creation? How can he be in the creation without creation being deified? Um, now, of course, as reformational thinkers, as Christians, the Bible talks about the presence of God that, um, it, you know, David talks, talks about, uh, the psalmist talks about whether he is in the uttermost parts of the sea, if he makes his bed in Hades, you are there. So we can, we can talk, of course, about the omnipresence of God, but in very specific philosophical terms, we're talking now about this idea of how we would have both transcendence and um, imminence, how we would describe that without deifying um, the creation or cosmologizing God, right? burying God within it. So do, does transcendence somehow imply that God exists uh, or, or, or is somehow um, disconnected from creation in his relationship to creation? Does his imminence within it collapse God within to it? So what we saw in our discussion of Thomism with this problem of seeing reality and existence on this one level and in a hierarchy, with God in that hierarchy, and remember, with the proofs of God, um, the so-called proofs of God that Thomas uses, he begins with that idea of, of God being a cause within um, the beginning of a series of temporal causes. So this view that he has of being uh, on one level becomes becomes problematic in a multiplicity of ways. And so what we've said is that the, the, a second problem with this dichotomy within creation this hierarchy of, of um, higher and lower within one concept of being doesn't properly respect the radical distinction between God and his creation that's found in the Bible. And that the Bible is not concerned to speculate philosophically uh, about some sort of ontic uh, analogy between God and creation but is concerned with the religious relationship between God and creation. Creation, in that sense, for the reformational thinker, is a mystery. Hmm. The human person, the I, is a mystery. God is distinct from creation. He has a law for creation. That distinction is radical. He cannot be collapsed with creation. He is not um, cosmologized within creation. We cannot speak of eternal law reflected in creation from this biblical uh, reformational standpoint. Um, and so God and creation biblically are in a religious relationship, but they're not in an ontic relationship where we have to talk about uh, analogy of similarity and difference between God and creation. God is God. There is uncreated being, and there is created being. There's no hierarchy. Right. There's yeah. no hierarchical structure. There is created being that is, that is in religious relationship to God in its totality. And there is the uncreated being of God. And God has his law, his will, his purpose for creation. Um, but And the reason that this is so important is that with all of this analogy, similarity, hierarchy language you end up basically with creation participating in the divine 
and, and right. Thomas doesn't get away from this idea of participation. Yeah. And then, then the idea of, of the lower part of, of the universe, of nature, and of human nature, then, is this longing to be somehow subsumed within divinity, uh, to, to participating in the divine, um, rather than being satisfied in our humanity and, and then getting our relationship with God right. It all becomes about somehow... Uh, transcending the lower part of us into somehow a higher part of us in this dichotomy where the soul, we'll come to this in just a moment, where the soul then is in that transcendent part and is immortal. It's somehow about the soul's contemplation of the divine and participation in the divine rather than our fundamental religious relationship to God within creation itself. Um, And so... The, the highest quest of, of, of a human being becomes this kind of supernatural deification if you accept this dualism. And so that was our second fundamental criticism, this, this dichotomy, this dualism within, of a hierarchy within one concept of existence um, is sub-biblical and it re- results in all kinds of false problematics. Right. And actually, it, somewhat ironically, uh, is uh, is related to another another dualism, and uh, this is a dualism, you know, an, an informal poll of my own memory suggests that we talk, we've talked about this more often than many of these other things, and in uh, in a wider range of subjects. But uh, it's the uh, the dualism of nature and grace. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's it's it's. it's it's important that this one in the discussion is placed where it is after we've just talked about the dichotomy, the hierarchy within reality, because this is the preeminent one then yep. that emerges in Thomistic thought. Um, a, a, a dual a view, a dual focus, um, a double focus view within reality itself, that reality now consists of a, an earthly or a terrestrial, a natural sphere, and a supernatural, divine, or heavenly sphere. So that created reality now is divided between a realm of nature and a realm of grace. And that distinction uh, becomes essentially methodological within Thomism. Now, we said early on in the series that not all Thomism is made alike and that the kind of original Thomism of Thomas Aquinas and the early followers, you know, there's been developments within Neo-Thomism, but they all recognize, they may have tried to reformulate in certain ways this problem, but it's proven itself to be irresolvable uh, and the nature-grace problem irreconcilable within this um, within this dichotomy. So you've got really nature grace is a method. It's, it's the, the, the method is how do you affect a synthesis or a compromise between biblical revelation, that would be seen as the realm of, of, um, of grace, by the way, and this extra biblical philosophy. That really was the whole purpose of the nature grace distinction is how was Thomas going to synthesize the this the insights and in adverted commas of Aristotle with respect to uh, natural philosophy, um, Greek thought, form matter, with biblical revelation. How could they be synthesized? And the answer was um, 
nature grace. So it becomes a method of looking at everything, looking at the world, looking at theology, looking at the Bible. Um, but that method is not some sort of neutral tool. You often hear Thomas talking about, look, scholasticism is just a method. Yeah, yeah but that's not an, a formal, neutral uh, method like, um, I mean, we would even argue that the, the, the logical tools or mathematical tools aren't neutral, truly. But of course, um, but even, I mean, but even if you were trying to not a neutral method, there, like, there's disagreement about how to do an opticians test. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, but even if they were trying to use that, I, that, that, that word method in terms of, let's say, more mathematical or formal logical uh, terms, that, that, that it's just a methodology. Right. There's nothing, there's nothing neutral or merely formal about it because reality is construed according to this double focus. So yeah. that involves a whole set of assumptions, philosophical assumptions, religious assumptions. The method itself cannot claim any kind of neutrality. And um, the transcendent part then of this dichotomy uh, that, that we've talked about within reality is associated with the supernatural. It's so associated with this pole of grace and the non-transcendent part that of the dichotomy is associated with with nature, with natural cosmic things, and of course cultural things. We've talked about that. And actually, when you look at the Thomistic philosophers, the difference between nature and grace is that the the sphere of grace or the sphere of faith um, is seen as above and beyond the reach of natural reason. And that's where you need the Bible and the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus. Uh, you need you need revelation as such. And the reason for that is that this sphere of grace can only be understood fully and properly by, by faith. So the upper story is only accessed by faith in this hierarchy, in this dualism. Um, but nature is the realm of, uh, uh, of what we would call creation and the realm of culture is all the realm of human reason. That's the sphere of human reason. That doesn't need faith. Doesn't need the realm of faith. Doesn't need um, the, rev the, the direct revelation of scripture, the specific revelation, unique revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't need the Bible or the insight of faith to be rightly understood and interpreted. And so that gives us again, and, and this is where we take fundamental issue Mm -hmm. uh, in our third point here of nature grace with Thomism, we deny that human understanding or reasoning is uninvolved with the area of grace. We're always um, uh, uh, reasoning and thinking in our understanding. I mean, Augustine would have talked about faith seeking understanding, that it is that our, our human thinking, our human understanding is constantly engaged as we reflect on and think about the grace of God, the, the work of God by the Holy Spirit, the revelation of God in Scripture. Of course, we're always human reasoning, human understanding is fully engaged there. The totality of our person is engaged as we think about the issues of the grace of God. Um, and likewise, we would did fundamentally deny that um, human reasoning, that human understanding is somehow sufficient for the issues that are not concerned with the church proper or 
our personal salvation and redemption proper, but with government, culture, education, law, politics, uh, the natural sciences, all of these different things, all of those different areas, faith commitments, religious commitments are, are inescapably involved, as is the worldview of the Bible and the specific teaching of the Bible. Uh, the notion that human understanding is sufficient to itself in that so-called area of nature, we would fundamentally and vociferously deny. Mm -hmm. So at both levels, you could say that in a certain sense, they, they both overrate and underrate the role of human understanding and human reasoning then. Right. Because the totality of the person is involved, whether we're thinking about the life of the church, our personal salvation, our personal commitment and our walk with Christ, our personal piety, our personal walk with the Lord, our human understanding is equally engaged there. And we need to be reasoning. Think the scripture says, God says, come, let us reason together. Though your sin be as scarlet, yet it may be white as snow. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're fully engaged there. And we know we've talked about the religious root of all human thought. And therefore, there is no way in the world that politics, law, education, the arts, the sciences, that are that the fundamental faith commitments, biblical revelation for the Christian, the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ are not fundamentally critical and germane to all of those things. So the 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 notion that the notion that nature and Aquinas has this sort of inherent um, quest uh, for the supernatural to transcend to the supernatural to be completed or perfected by this upper story of grace. Uh, we would say these are these are um, constructs. They involve false problematics, um, and they're not derived from the Bible. For one thing, how can nature be a quest for the supernatural? Uh, since uh, a natural longing would a longing uh, for a natural longing for the supernatural would no longer be purely natural, would it? Mm. And and you could you could spin that the other way around as well. If nature is perfected by the supernatural, not cancelled by the supernatural, as Aquinas insisted, then there'd, there'd have to be something natural about the supernatural, right? Other, how could they how could they interact? How could they have anything to do with one another? Exactly. Not, yeah. How can there be an interaction between these two domains unless they're already involved in each other in in some way? So it leaves you with this irres irresolvable tension um, of trying to understand their relationship. Um, and it's irresolvable because it's a false problem. It's a false dichotomy. So that would be our, that would be our, our third um, core objection in this series to, to Thomism. Right. And it's, uh, as you say, we, we oppose this sort of thinking strenuously and that it's not, not because we find some nitpicky uh, line out of place here, but because what you think about, as you said, Joe, already, ideas have consequences. And I, I love the succinctness of that expression. But your your ideas about what is a human being and what is God and what is the relationship between God and human beings, that has immediate real-world consequences for how do I treat my fellow human beings and how do I... And, Am I accountable to God for the way that I that I treat another human being? And all of yeah. these immediate ethical questions of practical life are are answered dramatically differently. Yeah, I, I think the 
the fundamental issue here is that the, the, I like the way you've put that. It's not that there is one little bits and pieces here and there that we don't like about uh, Thomistic thought. It's the whole direction of an orientation of Thomistic thought that is, that is problematic and then has these very, very concrete uh, consequences in people's lives um, that we're convinced are counterproductive. Um, and so that's why, you know, that's why we've given the time to it, because we, we want people to, to see a more robustly and consistently biblical view um, and not this sort of synthetic um, vision of, uh, of, of, hell, of basically Grecianizing the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, the next thing that uh, that you've articulated, we've talked uh, talked a little bit about human beings in terms of ontology, but uh, there there's more to say about about it in the uh, in the field of anthropology, which deals specifically with what it means to be human. Uh, can you tell tell us about how how Aquinas handles this question and uh, the the issues that uh, that we would take? Yeah, so again, hopefully this will just be a bit of, uh, just a bit of brief revision for most people from our discussions around anthropology in a, in a, in a previous uh, uh, program. But um, the reason this would be the sort of fourth thing that we would highlight as, as problematic is that, again, this emerges, and you can see, I mean, you have to admire the logical consistency of it, at least. You know, when right. you start with a fundamental dichotomy in reality, uh, so you've you know you've got this idea of existence on one level, but it's hierarchical and there's a dichotomy. Well, you then see these dichotomies appearing everywhere, right. and so it's only natural then that when you look at anthropology and you look at what a human being is, that we're going to see um, a dichotomy emerge there as well. And this is what we see emerging in Thomism uh, that we take issue with. Uh, that the human person becomes an uncomfortable assemblage, really, of two substances. And so rather than recognizing the unity of the human person and emphasizing and focusing on the unity of what it means to be a human being as a creature with the breath of God in us, an integral unity, and, and of course we've often talked, and I guess at this Christmas season it's good to be reminded that you know, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, we see the integral unity of the human person in the incarnation. Uh, that uh, it was insufficient for, an, uh, for, for, for the Son of God to come as a kind of, to appear human, to have a sort of body, but not to really be human, with, a, with, with uh, both in the inner and outer man, what we might call it, with a, with a human spirit, with the root, of his person being true. Jesus Christ was truly human as well as being truly God. So it wasn't that Christ had um, merely the logos plopped down uh, into a human uh, body as some sort of receptacle, but that Jesus Christ was truly human and truly the son of God, truly divine. And so that's good to be reminded of that at Christmas time. And of course, we think about it with the resurrection too, is that Jesus wasn't uh, resurrected as an apparition or merely as a spirit, or we might say a soul, a disembodied soul, but walked out of the grave, an integral human being. Uh, And he 
cooks fish for his disciples and eats breakfast. And he says to Thomas, you know, put your fingers here. Uh, place your, stop doubting and believe. It, it, that, you know, but, and, and he says, my Lord and my God. Um, because he actually recognized Christ in his full humanity as Lord, as well as being God. So, um, and it's interesting that because of the influence of Greek thought, we had those early heresies of doceticism where, um, and the like, where, where Christ only appears to be human because he's got a sort of human body or appears to have a body, but he's not really human uh, because the divine couldn't possibly be contaminated by this lower level uh, of existence, by the material, uh, which is interesting. But in, but in Thomistic um, thought, yes, the human person becomes an assemblage, uh, an uncomfortable assemblage of two elements within this hierarchy of being. We've got God, uh, we, we can call it technically the subsistence theory, the subsistence theory, um, uh, because the soul comes from God as a separate substance. So you have essentially the idea that God creates a new human soul at some time or another during conception or afterwards somewhere. And he creates that into the human body, which is derived from the parents. So from, from, from nature, from the parents, you get the body. And, uh, that theory is called uh, creationism, and that not to be confused with creationism, but creation creationism. Um, so it's not quite uh, it's not spelt the same. It's uh, I A N creationism, uh, not I O N. Um, but that's the the theory that the the body comes from the parents, but God creates a new human soul each time, uh, and it comes from God as a separate substance because it's supernatural. And therefore, it's unlike the human body because the soul that's coming from God now that's just been created by God um, and put into the body is immortal. So you've got a natural material body and an immortal soul, a body that's come from the parents, but an immortal soul that has come from God. And of course, that involves the highly problematic idea that God creates sinful human souls originally eat with every new human being he creates something sinful and he puts it down into a body and so the human being becomes an not a unity but an uncomfortable assemblage of an immortal substance created by god and the natural material body given to them given uh, that, uh, that comes from the parents and then of course you get this idea that after death, this immortal soul substance survives in some disembodied state. And then you, of course, get built into that with Roman Catholic concepts later on of purgatory and people uh, in their in the immortal state here as souls working off past sins. And then you get praying, of course, for these um, uh, departed souls, these immortal souls who may need grace. And so not just prayers to, but prayers for the departed and so on. It emerges from this, this idea. So rather than saying in the reformational tradition, the human person is a unity 
And when we talk about the spirit of a person or the soul of a person, we're simply talking about the inner man. And we're, we're, we're actually, we're talking about the, the totality of the person with a, with, from the angle of the inner man. Uh, when we talk about somebody's body, we're talking about the person, uh, but from the angle of the outer man. But these are uh, bound together in a unity and we raise together. And that at our death, we are confronted with a mystery. Uh, that in that until the resurrection, um, while well, the, the scripture says that I have already died and my life is hid together with Christ in God. And that Paul says, absent from the body, but present with the Lord. So that the 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 I-ness of who I am is safe and secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a mystery. Paul talks the metaphor of the Bible, of course, the favored metaphor is falling asleep and, uh, and resting in God. Um, but there's no uh, biblical teaching about disembodied souls and spirits uh, um, inhabiting some disembodied realm until the resurrection and so on. That just isn't, that isn't taught in the Bible. This is God's mystery. So our, our fourth fundamental complaint about Thomism is in terms of its anthropology, where there is, it, it, it uh, fails to recognize the radical unity of the human person, and that has massive implications for how we think about the human being. And these went on, of course, they knocked on all the way to people like Descartes, who, who thought the pituitary gland was the point of connection between body and soul, and these radical dualisms that prevent us from getting proper insight into the nature of the human person. And instead, we've got this uncomfortable assemblage of two uh, un- in essentially unrelated parts. And the reformational tradition, I think the Bible has issue with that and it, and it has implications for the resurrection, for the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be a human being. Right. And it's uh, it's interesting, providential, that uh, that you mentioned those, those last two things about uh, the incarnation of Christ and uh, what it means to be human, because the next, uh, the next issue that we've identified with, with Aquinas is his approach to apologetics, uh, which the, you know, the, uh, the art of Christian persuasion, of the vindication of the Christian world and life view. And uh, again, we, we see that all of these issues as you say, you, you have to admire the internal consistency. It also means that all of these, what we might call carry-through errors, uh, run together into this, uh, this apologetic task. And what, so what does, uh, what does Aquinas have to, have to say, or how does he model apologetics for us? And what, yeah. are, the, what are the issues that we would have with that, uh, that approach? Well, I'll be briefer on this because I know that we we dealt we have, and, let, and I'll refer people to an earlier um, episode program where we dealt with Aquinas and apologetics, and I would really encourage people to listen to that one. That's right. Um, we, we really get whole, into the yeah. Spent a whole yeah. episode on on this topic. So. Yeah, we really get into the detail of that. Um, and uh, but I would say that one of the important things to observe is what you've actually already highlighted is that the way that the apologetic is a natural consequence of his cosmology mm-hmm. and his anthropology. So from from because of his cosmology and the hierarchy of being, the proofs for God or the way in which Aquinas goes about apologetics, um, 
sees God essentially as the beginning of a chain of causes. Uh, and in fact, most of the arguments sort of reduced to that as God being a prime mover, uh, a first cause, um, the within this sort of hierarchy of being. And there's a, I, I would argue actually that the, the these arguments have a tendency to, to if they prove anything at all, uh, is to prove pantheism. Um, yeah, this, this uh, God, is not a vindication of Trinitarian Christianity. Right. God becomes essentially the end of a chain of temporal causes, um, but the triune God of Scripture, um, the creator God, who calls all things into being, um, but is not at, but is not at the beginning of a chain of merely temporal causes who can be associated with a hierarchy. And that's why we talk about the mystery of creation. Um, and we want to avoid, uh, talking in terms of these, uh, and likenesses and distinctions, these sorts of analogies as though we can make the leap from the temporal world of creation to the, uh, eternal reality of the fellowship of the Trinity um, and, and try and close the gap with all these sorts of speculations. Um, so the, the, the sort of, the sort of causal argument that, um, that a, that a, um, a, cha a, a changing universe, uh, a, a, where, where we have temporal causality requires an, an unchanging eternal cause uh, within this sort of hierarchy. Um, as I say, if it proves anything at all, and I and I question whether it prove whether it whether it's legitimate to make even that leap, mm -hmm. uh, that's another discussion, a longer discussion. But if it proves anything at all, it certainly doesn't prove the the triune God of the Bible. But a, a, a vague conception of, of the divine that reduces to a kind of blank, um, a blank unity of Plotinus um, within Greek philosophy, uh, a kind of pantheism. So it doesn't prove um, Christian theism. Um, it, it fails to take, uh, Thomistic apologetics fails to take a robustly biblical starting point as well, because it fails to recognize the radical fallenness of human reasoning and uh, pr proposes to tell people that if you would just think rationally and be reasonable and follow this line of argumentation, you would, it will lead you to the conclusion of God. And of course, Aquinas um, isn't trying to prove some vague conception of divinity. He's arguing with the Muslims after all. He, his concern is to um, establish the a reality of the God of Scripture, but that's not who he's proving. Um, and so... There's a kind of irony here because the, the goal of this sort of rationalistic apologetic is to try and make the Christian faith acceptable to non-Christians um, by sort of showing them that our faith is not irrational but rational. Um, but then it ends up actually showing that, 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 that reasoning only is adequate for the realm of nature and that now you need to make this leap into the realm of faith hmm. and the realm of grace uh, in order to understand what it means to be human. So you go through all of this rationalistic argumentation in the name of the autonomy of natural reason and the reach of human reason in the natural realm, only to conclude that 
there's an on-tick shortcoming with human reason, and now you need to make this, uh, this, this leap. And that's why rationalistic Thomistic apologetics is always uh, directed towards the balance of probability. Um, right. Yeah. The, uh, uh, in a certain sense, um, probabilistic argumentation yeah, that God is the is the inference to the best explanation. Um, that uh, you know the sort of language of the courtroom. Um, that he's uh, that that it's more probably true that God is than any other, um, because that's what happens with those rationalistic arguments, and therefore you're left with that Kierkegaardian, Kierkegaardian leap. That's right. Um, beyond reason into the line above reason into this realm of grace, and so there's a certain irony there with this apologetic too. That on the one hand it it's, it assumes too much about reason doesn't take the, the fallenness of man's, because uh, Aquinas didn't, take the fallenness of man's reason sufficiently seriously. Mm -hmm. I felt that, he, that man's reason was good as far as it went. So you get this kind of um, arrogant sense of the pride of man, the pride of his reason, that takes you through a course of argumentation that merely leads you to realize that um, there is an ontic failure uh, here, to 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 take us to anything beyond a vague conception of a first cause and therefore you now need a leap across the chasm because these are merely probabilistic arguments uh and this is why of course modern rationalistic apologists will might use the cosmological cosmological arguments of various sorts for, for to a certain point and then they'll start throwing in evidential arguments about the resurrection and the and um mm -hmm. The, the 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 New Testament text and so on and so forth, uh, and then um, uh, sort of slightly embarrassed, make certain attempts to argue about the Trinity um, with this blockhouse method, because their Thomistic rationalistic arguments simply don't get them to Christian theism, um, and they're left merely with these probabilistic arguments. Whereas a reformational apologetic is not going to be on the back foot, desperately trying to show that that uh, Christianity is rational uh, to the non-believer um, and asking them to um, uh, consider our faith because actually it's really rational, um, but, actually, uh, but actually say, you know, no, um, a reformational apologetic is going to say human beings at the root of their being are religious. We're not going to be on the defensive. We're going to be on the front foot. Um, and you cannot make sense of human life. You cannot make it intelligible. You cannot make your own thought processes intelligible. You cannot even make the project of human reasoning intelligible unless you have already, unless you already recognize or submit to, if you're going to be consistent, that is, if you're going to be truly consistent, then for you to have an ordered world, a world with any kind of law order, um, you must surrender your idea of autonomy. After all, if there's going to be laws for rational engagement for, for human scholarship, if there's going to be um, things that we can agree on in a, in a debate about what constitutes a valid argumentation, then we're already presupposing a law for creation. That's and right. so the, the, the reformational direction is to say, no, you the you are reduced to an irrational, absurd, uh, unintelligible world when you deny 
Christian theism. And only upon the worldview foundation of Christian theism can you have an intelligible world of experience where even our debate and our discussion make sense. So it's an internal critique of the non-believer's worldview with Christianity as the only one standing that makes reality intelligible. And so the proof for Christianity within the reformational apologetic tradition is indirect, not this direct approach that we can prove from causation that God probably exists, which is never what Christian apologetics is trying to do anyway. We're not trying to show that God probably exists, but that Jesus Christ is Lord and you need to repent and believe the gospel. We are to strip away every hiding place that, uh, that human beings have and leave them with a sense of their total accountability to God that they have no excuse. That's the biblical trajectory. The Thomistic apologetic simply doesn't get you there, and that's why we'd be, we'd be critical of a Thomistic apologetic. Right. And uh, finally, the, uh, the last, last specific criticism of, of Thomism that, uh, that we've gone through that I'd like to rehearse here with you is a, uh, an expansion of apologetics, uh, where and the the way that you've put it is that Thomism actually necessarily inescapably denies uh, uh, in the final analysis the possibility of a Christian philosophy, which is a uh, which is a surprising claim, and I, I hope that you'll uh, you'll spend some time unpacking that as we close here. Well, and there's a certain irony to it as well, isn't there? Um, given that this is a, a synthesis philosophy. And, and in some respects, um, you have a you have well, you do have here a Christian thinker being commissioned to interpret Aristotle for the Christian Church. Mm-hmm. So you would think that that would somehow result in some kind of distinctly Christian philosophy, but that's precisely what doesn't happen. Um, and and that's rooted basically in what we talked about earlier: the the the, the dichotomy and the separation of nature and grace. Uh, because for the Thomist, because philosophy is operating at the level of nature in the lower story, not in the area of grace, Christianity is is a faith. Right. It's it's faith in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's an upper story in the in the hierarchy issue, and the only um, discipline. Within the, within the Thomistic framework that deals with that realm of faith and of grace and of redemption and of the special revelation is theology. So you can have a Christian theology because theology is the queen of the sciences, another expression that we would take issue with. And I've only come to a full understanding of that being problematic in the last seven or eight years. Uh, that the, the, this notion that theology is the queen of the sciences that must mediate theology as a, as a science must mediate grace to all the other sciences, if they're to have any grace at all, is wrong. It's, it's a part of this ongoing dualism and this nature-grace separation as it's applied to the human sciences or the disciplines, the, the, the different uh, fields of study that we come across within the university. So nature philosophy is dealing with the lower story with nature um with cosmology and ontology and then of course um culture and philosophies of law and philosophies of politics and so on um but theology that's the upper story science and so because 
the, the philosophy is in the realm of nature, according to Thomism, and is not, and is, is essentially autonomous, um, and uh, therefore is a, is a law to itself. And that's the realm of human reason, where human reason is sufficient. The, here, then, in the realm of philosophy, the Bible, the claims of Christ, the work and grace of the Holy Spirit are not relevant. They're simply not at work. So you don't have a distinctly Christian philosophy because philosophy is that neutral, autonomous area of human reason that uh, is uninvolved with uh, the world of uh, the realm of grace. Um, and so what this often prevents people from do, from recognizing is the influence of their philosophy on their theology. They see them as radically disconnected. Philosophy is over there dealing with certain natural and cultural issues. Theology is up here dealing with redemption and nature, uh, uh, sorry, redemption, supernature, uh, salvation, God's grace. And, th and therefore they don't realize or don't recognize when they're, Philosophical assumptions are having a profound influence on their theology. Um, so the, the sad thing is that despite all this effort to synthesize Greek philosophy with Christianity, you end up with a denial that there is such a thing as Christian philosophy. And as such, a denial that there is such a thing as um, Christian, uh, Christian politics um, uh, and Christian law, because you've got natural law instead. Um, and, and therefore Christian culture. Um, you may, you will at a stretch, even today, get a vague notion of Christendom tied up with uh, the Pope um, right. and the ecclesiasticizing of life. Um, but for the most part, even though Protestants have been trying to use Thomas and natural law, to, some Protestants have tried to be use Thomas and natural law to, to get to some kind of general conception of law for a broadly Christian idea of society. Fundamentally, you cannot within Thomism have Christian philosophy and therefore a Christian view of the state, a distinctly Christian view of the state, a Christian view of politics, a distinctly Christian view of law, hence the resistance and the opposition to theonomy. You, you might have a Christian attitude. So the, the, the philosophers might, the, these philosophers, the Thomists might say, well, um, you can't have a distinctly Christian philosophy in terms of content, uh, in terms of method and content, but you can have a Christian attitude. That is, you know, you're, you've got a humble attitude, your, mm -hmm. your faith, your Christian faith is informing your attitude towards others. Um, uh, in the task of philosophy, there's an obedience to the Christian faith. But of course, for us as reformational thinkers, um, a, a Christian attitude is insufficient. We do want a Christian attitude, of course, but we want a Christian philosophical perspective um, in result and in content. We want our Christian philosophy to have a Christian result. We want it to have a Christian content, not merely some vague attitude. And um, in summing this up, uh, I was interested to discover... Uh, in the work of um, Bernie van der Waalt, um, mm. a quote from um, Alistair McIntyre, uh, a noted um, Catholic uh, Christian philosopher, expresses this openness um, to a, a kind of openness to an integral Christian philosophy. He's a very elderly man now, 
Um, but I thought this was insightful. I found this uh, this quote from him in um, Bernie Vandervolt's book on Thomas Aquinas. And um, he actually said this. He said, and I quote, religion as an activity divorced from other activities is without point. If religion is only a part of life, then religion has become optional. Only religion, which is a way of living in every sphere, either deserves or can hope to survive. End quote. That's a fascinating statement. Yes. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a window of openness, openness there that I found interesting. What a powerful thought that is, that only religion, which is a way of living in every sphere, either deserves or can hope to survive. Um. And I think that's part of the crisis of our time. I think this is why what we're talking about in this, uh, have talked about in this series and why we've kind of given it a, a full hour or more to, to wrap this up uh, for Christmas is that only an integral Christian faith that is part of every aspect and every sphere of life um, deserves uh, the name Christian um, and only that kind of a religion can hope to survive. And I think that one of the reasons in the West we're seeing this de-Christianization and we're seeing such apostasy in the church and we see, we're seeing the collapse of the Christian world and life view in the church is because religion is seen as a part of life. It's seen as optional. Um, it's seen as an element over here, a condiment to give flavor to my other words, normal, natural, secular life in the world. And... Uh, the danger is that eventually, if that is not reversed with a truly Christian world and life view and a truly Christian philosophy, in the places where that sort of optional, partial view of, of, of the faith predominate, it will eventually die out. Um, we do have, of course, today, even within Protestant circles, some advocates of this dual realm doctrine, people like David Van Drunen, um, that that really uh, maintain this sort of nature grace uh, uh, dichotomy, um, but from a Christian standpoint, this is this is wholly unacceptable, and the Thomism which underlies it is unacceptable. It's based on this attempt to Christianize an age an age old pagan dualism between the the secular and the sacred. Um, and uh, if I can quote um, uh, Bernie van der Volt for a moment, he says the word of God does not know this distinction between natural and supernatural spheres. The biblical contrast is not that between nature and grace, but between sin and grace. The, oppos the opposite of grace is not nature or sin either, but the wrath of God. So uh, the, the Bible um, recognizes a distinction between sin and grace, but the opposition is between uh, grace and God's wrath. And he concludes by saying, the reformational tradition taught that the lives of human beings are religiously determined. The essence of a human being is to be in a covenant relationship with God, not just a so-called supernatural sphere of life of the soul or spirit. And so the only solution to this, our conclusion of this whole miniseries, is that we need to abandon the entire scheme of nature grace, of a dualism between uh, the sacred and the secular, of a dichotomy within 
uh, one concept of existence of a hierarchy within that existence, but recognize the religious root of creation, the division between sin and grace, and the opposition between grace and wrath in hmm. history, and how we are required by God to live and work and serve with the totality of our being in every area of life by his grace in terms of his kingdom purposes. And that to that last statement that you made, Joe, that really is what to what the reason that the Ezra Institute exists. And as uh, as we started from, uh, or as I said in the beginning, this uh, this concludes our twelve or so week uh, excursion into Aquinas. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your your prayers and support and ongoing listening this year. We. We uh, leave this here. I'm sure we'll come back to Aquinas here and there, but we leave uh, leave this program uh, off for now. Uh, we wish you a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and we remind you that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Mm-hmm.